everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fifth Risk Radio and the Defining Time Show. It's Anthony here. I'm joined by Alex, the watch regulator. How are you today? I'm great. Very excited. Pumped. Yeah. Had a few too many whiskeys already, but I'm ready to go. Uh, we'll get to drink checks in a minute. Okay. Like, just, just calm down, will you? All right. It is an absolute pleasure to introduce our special guest today, and that is Michael Woods from Woods Watchmaking. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good, guys. Thanks, Anthony and Alex, for uh, having me on the, the uh, podcast. I've, I've, um, I've binged, listened to your podcasts in the last week and a half and um, got through every episode. So um, ah, I'm, well. ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Good, That's good. Great. Yeah. All right. So today uh, we're going to talk, uh, you know, obviously to Michael and find out who you are, what you do, how it all began. And, and then we're also going to have a little chat about a project that Michael's got on the go as well. But before we get into all of that, we'll do some wrist checks. So we'll go with our guest. Michael, what are you wearing today on your wrist? I'm wearing a Bremont MB2. And um, yeah, just, just recently bought this, uh, well, the end of last year. And um, and it's I, I love it I love it it's a watch I put on when I I can't decide on the watch and which is most days at the moment and um, <laughs> yeah it's it's got the it's got the uh, hardened it's got a hardened steel case orange orange barrel um, I love it I love it as an everyday watch is that the one that you can um, get ejected out of a fighter plane and the watch will be okay yes. And I'm, oh. yeah, planning on doing that at some stage. Yeah. <laughs> just to test it. Ejected well, over a nightclub. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, and Alex, what about you? I am still wearing... Oh God, I'm so embarrassed now. But I still love it. I'm still wearing my Swatch skin. Still. Yeah, very, good. Just, very good. I'm mad, madly in love. I, no apologies. I apologize. I don't, I don't, mind, I don't mind the Swatch skin. It's easy uh, to work on just chuck it in the bin yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're good watches they are good and i'm wearing my blnr um in spirit of the, the last couple of podcasts we've done which uh hopefully people have already listened to by now uh but yeah i uh if you go back to episode 30 you'll hear a discussion around why i decided to keep it versus someone that decided to sell his so really cool if you haven't heard it go back and have a listen um, but uh, now we're going to get on to the whiskey because I believe we are all drinking whiskey. So uh, we'll start with Alex today. How many whiskeys do you have in front of you? I've got, <laughs> I've got two whiskeys. I've got, um, I was kind of preloading, if you like, because I was drinking a blend before the podcast just to get myself kind of lubricated up. And um, <laughs> and now the podcast has started. I'm, I'm moving on to single malt. So I was drinking Dimple before, got a little bit of that left. Um, and I'm back on the, the card do that was given to me by the, the lovely Dane from the Watch Vault. So I'll be enjoying both of those. Very good. Very good. Michael, what about you? Uh, I'm on to the Jamison today. Uh, the Irish, Irish whiskey. I love, love Ireland. It's like my second home. So uh, Cool. Um, yeah. I like Jamison. Yeah. Jamison's a good drop. It is. Um, and I've... Yeah, I do have scotch occasionally, but the Jamison is uh, a good one to start with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I've gone with a, an Oban 
single malt scotch from uh, the West Highlands, a 14-year-old. Uh, if you haven't tried it, get out and, and give it a go because it's a, it's a beautiful scotch to be drinking neat with a dash of water, with some ice, whatever you want, however you like it, it's, um, it works. So give that one a go. All right, watch watch checks done, drink checks done. Let's uh, let's get into our conversation. So, without further ado, uh, who are you, Michael Woods? I am a third generation watchmaker, and wow. um, I've been I've been uh, watchmaking for about twenty years now. So, um, yeah, my grandfather started a, uh, a jewelry shop, which is still open. He started in nineteen fifty six. And my father is a watchmaker also. My grandfather is a uh, – my uncle, sorry, is a watchmaker and a clockmaker. My brother is a watchmaker. Um, my cousin is a watchmaker. And um, basically the entire family are just in the, in the industry in some, some form. My, my sister is a gemologist. Um, wow. So she studies, she studies diamonds and rubies and sapphires and all, all – all, stones basically and um and even my mother works in the family business still wow and, um, yeah so there's a fair bit of uh, fair bit of pedigree there for you to there have is. gone and did you did you ever want to be anything else i did i did in fact okay. i was as a, as a typical teenager i was sort of rebelled against the idea of of following the footsteps of my dad and i sort of yeah, I felt that because I was the oldest grandchild, um, my grandfather was the, watch, the first watchmaker, and so I thought everyone expected me to sort of be the watchmaker, and that's what, that's how I felt anyway. And so, initially, I I started I studied marketing coming out of, of school, and I studied a few a few different few different uh, subjects, but um, I was always working at the in the family business in just in sales and and serving customers and whatnot and for a bit of pocket money but then um then after i tried a couple of different subjects i um at university i ended up at the family business again just working there and my uncle at some stage sort of said to me um well while you're here why don't you why do you take up a trade i was like oh, okay okay so my dad called um the teacher of the watchmaking course at RMIT when they had one running there in Melbourne and inquired about a, an apprenticeship course. And sort of the, the, the teacher said, well, um, has, has your son disassembled a movement before, a watch movement, and assembled it? And my dad just said yes. And so as soon as the phone call ended, my dad got off the phone. Or I call it distinctly. My dad got off the phone and said, "All right, I'm going to get you to pull a watch, a watch movement." <laughs> <laughs> so, so he grabbed some, he grabbed some crappy little ladies' movement out of the out of a drawer and just said, "Pull this apart and put it back together." And and I really wasn't, I didn't know how I'd feel about it. I was just, I was just sort of entertaining the idea. But as soon as I pulled the thing apart, disassembled it, and, and put it back together, um, I was hooked, and it was it was like it was meant to be. And from there, I just dove straight into it. I started my apprenticeship under under the teacher at RMIT, Michael Presser, who's now currently the the um, official Patek Philippe service agent here in Australia or in Melbourne. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
and I, and I I just I got right into it. I mean, I, I was I was addicted. Um, I'd, I'd work during the day, obviously with my my dad and my uncle, and I'd go home for dinner at night, and then I'd come back to the the family business at night, sometimes after dinner, and just just spending time restoring watches and just learning as much as I could, and just working a lot of late nights and just practicing. And 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 it was all. I didn't feel like I wanted to get better. I just felt like I wanted just just wanted to con- continually service and restore watches. It was always something else. It was a vintage Omega or a vintage Jaeger Lecoultre or or whatever. I just always wanted to work on the next watch. So um, that's that's how it all began, anyway. Yeah. Wow. So how long have you been doing this for now? It's it's been about twenty years. So I, yeah, I nice. at that point it was sort of the end of the nineties when I when I started seriously looking at becoming a watchmaker and then and then I, I started RMIT in two thousand. And then um, that apprenticeship obviously lasts a few years. Um, and after that I I decided I wanted to move to Melbourne. Um, for for a number of reasons to, to be to be around some friends and to go out and have a good good time and but also to have more exposure to, to some other watches to um to some um high grade watches i suppose so i i actually one of the one of the watchmakers in the course i was studying um was working at a a, a shop a jeweler shop in in south yarra and he introduced me to the to the owner there and basically helped me get a job and it was a collections fine jewelry and and uh, the owner was a He's a really nice guy, and he gave me an opportunity to work work there. And as as a young watchmaker who was just who was just um, who had just become qualified, I got to work on Patek, Rolex, Jaeger, Vacheron, um, everything from modern wristwatches to vintage pocket watches, and and um, and yeah. After 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 several months, the watchmaker that introduced me to that. Uh, that owner of that jewelry shop um, left and left me in charge of being watchmaker at that that shop basically. So I was I got a lot of experience there. I, I serviced a lot of watches for him and um, really enjoyed enjoyed the experience. And I didn't realise at the time, but the watchmaker that left from he he was from he was a Kiwi from New Zealand, um, Paul Madden. He left. After after helping me get the job there, he left and went to Wastep as a as a teacher in Switzerland. Oh, wow. And um, and Wastep, if anyone if, if people don't know Wastep, it's um, Wastep stands for Watches of Switzerland Training and Education Program. So it's a sort of an international watchmaking school. It's set up in, in a number of different countries, and uh, its its headquarters or base is in Neuchâtel in Switzerland. So. Um, yeah, I basically, I basically finished. I finished uh, working at um, at that at that jeweler shop in in South Yarra um, after meeting a girl, an Irish girl, and moving and sort of holidaying in Ireland. So yeah. yeah, that's where the Jamisons comes from. That's, that's yeah, exactly, exactly. There's an Irish connection, and my now my wife, lovely, lovely uh, Lorraine, is um, she's Irish from the southeast of. Island from uh, County Waterford, little little town called Lismore, 
beautiful town, and so I spend a lot of a lot of time there now. So we we try yeah, and get awesome. over there, try and get over there every year or two to to visit the mother-in-law and the all of the nephews and nieces and the, the sister and brother-in-law. Yeah, so most of the family is over there at the moment. So. So when did you say you did your your WASTEP training? What year was that? That was 2003. So, so what, what happened? You, I was going to yeah. say, what do you think of the kind of no, general... Sorry, sorry, 2004. Yeah, 2004. What do, you, what do you think of the kind of general kind of dumbing down, if you like, of, of watchmaker training? Because it seems like certainly the big brands anyway are really trying to uh, kind of reduce... The, the number of years or a number of months that they have to 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 send people for for training down to the absolute minimum. I know um, I think we used to send people for a, a two year course, and now because it, there's a lot more, I'll, I'll say kind of you're like a a mechanic almost kind of changing parts rather than than making things. And obviously I'm not yeah. talking for for years on your behalf here, but um, and make it for the larger brands. Um, yep. I think there is a kind of fear of skills and stuff being lost because the level of training isn't what it used to be. It is the kind of bare minimum that that, that people are getting. What what are your what are your thoughts, yeah. if any, on um, on that? It's a, it's a good point, a really good question. I think uh, when I did was step back in two thousand four, there was still a, a still a focus on on real watchmaking training, where you where you made hair springs, you adjusted escapements, you you did real, real sort of watchmaking, and you and you worked on those those sort of skills. Um, and I and I understand why they've moved. Even Wastep has moved away from and offering courses where they they can train people just to be service basically technicians, because the the watchmaking industry at the moment and for many years has needed people that can just service watches, and just just pull apart watches, put them back together, and and so I understand where where and why the training is going in this direction. It's 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 sort of a necessity at this point. Um, it's a bit of un, it's it's unfortunate in some ways, um, but you understand it. There's such a demand for for after sales service. And, it does kind of put a cap a cap on those people's careers though, because it's yes. like you can't really get to the full watchmaker level without. Well, I guess you can, but you I guess can. a lot you you, you, you're going to really yeah. have to put, take it on yourself, and maybe that's the way it should be that you have to take on that responsibility if you want to progress to the kind of ultimate level yeah. that you, you do it all yourself. But I just think it, it's yeah, it does kind of cap people a little bit. There is a, a artificial ceiling kind of put in place that that holds a lot of people back from going that little bit that little bit further. But I totally agree with you as as well. It's it's a business need, and there's no point yep. sending people for two years of or more of training if the first six months or year isn't going to be anything that actually applies to them when they actually completely. go to to go to do the job that they'll end up doing. Yeah, completely. And and I think I think uh, there it, I think the 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 progression should be. Um, the way it is at the moment where people are trained as watch technicians first and then if they want to further their training they can there's there's plenty of schools around that offer offer training in in micro mechanics and finishing of of watch parts and make actually making components and then making watches as well so there's plenty of schools around the world 
that offer this sort of training. So I think it's a good progression of, of, of skills. Instead of just instead of just training watchmakers up to being fully skilled watchmakers where really the industry doesn't need those yeah. people at the moment. But I think I, I had a, I had a, I came through at a great a great time. Um, so after after my after my time at um, at the jewel shop in South Yarra, I I met a girl from Ireland. She was travelling, um, backpacking around the world, and and we sort of we hit it off, and and I ended up going for a holiday in Ireland to spend some more time with her, and that was the end. Now that was the start of two thousand four. And my the person that I work with in South Yarra, who was now a, a teacher at Wostep, called me when I was in Ireland and sort of said, "Look, I know you haven't cons- really considered it much, but someone has dropped out of of our of our refresher course in Wostep for next for the next uh, course. If 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 you want, if you can if you can put your application in soon enough, we can get you into the next course in in for the second half of 2004." So. I was in Ireland at the time, and I spending time with with my my then girlfriend, and um, and I just decided, yep, I'm going to do it. He convinced me, so 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 this guy basically changed the course of my my watchmaking career by by offering that and convincing me to do the do the course. So I put the application in. I went back, came back to Australia, and spent a few months sort of tidying up loose ends and and ending my ending my work at the at the place in South Yarra and then getting prepared to potentially stay overseas for years because my my thought was if I if I go to train in Switzerland I could potentially work in Switzerland or work somewhere in Europe as a watchmaker so so I went and stayed in Neuchâtel for six months um, in the in the Wostep course the refresher course and it was it was a, it was one of the best times of my life. I was in the in the course with uh, it was a, it was a course of ten students, and there were people from uh, Sweden, the UK, Greece, the US, uh, the Netherlands, um, and of course the teacher was from New Zealand. So it was a very very international course, and it was. It was just six months every day of just focusing on watchmaking, and that's all we did. And we we lived together, we worked, we we trained together. We we went on for for the first couple of months. We actually we went out on weekends and drank and and partied and had a good time. But in the last few months of that course, it was just there wasn't time for for anything but watchmaking. So even on weekends, Sunday mornings, we'd be we'd be in there. We all had a key to the school in Nishatel. And we'd um, we'd be in there most Sunday mornings for the people that were committed <laughs> and didn't go out on the Saturday night. We were, we were sort of in Sunday mornings working away, and and most most weekdays it was sort of 8:30 till in the morning till 8:30 at night sort of thing, um, just practicing. And I swear I did so much watchmaking and just focus on watchmaking that I got dumber in other aspects of life. <laughs> <laughs> I pushed other information out of my brain, but I but I developed a very, very like great skills very quickly and and one of the greatest skills i developed was being able to see just see stuff in the movement and and with with everything else i i learned with making hairsprings and and bending wheels and moving jewels and and timekeeping and um 
the biggest thing was being able to see everything. So I was able to see the smallest piece of dust on a jewel or uh, you, you can just, you, you manage to work the light in a certain way so that you can see everything. You can see a hairspring when it wasn't completely flat, when there was just the slightest tilt of a hairspring. And um, yeah, to give you an idea of our commitment, we um, the, there's a guy from Sweden, Henry Corpella, and you might you might know him as he's the, the like the 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 head instructor of a, a school in Switzerland now, um, KHWCC um, school. Oh yeah, yeah, Loft. yeah. So he and I were in the course together, and he and I were very we're, we're great friends now. We um, we're very competitive, and leading up to the hairspring exam, which was a fairly major exam, we were making hairsprings every day, and so we're making this. Very fine hairspring, which had a which had a, a beat of eighteen thousand beats per hour, but it was for an alarm alarm watch. I can't remember the caliber at the moment, but um, very fine, very difficult to to make. So we would make these hairsprings from a basic coil, and we would cut them at a certain length and and bend bend them to certain shapes, and then put them on the vibrating tool and and, and time them, and and we had to prepare every hairspring so that it could go into a into a movement basically from start to finish and it got to a point where we made so many of them it was just becoming so easy easy to do and we decided the two of us decided and i don't know if it was my idea or his idea but we decided to make it a bit more challenging so um we one day we drank keeping in mind keeping i'm not gonna say alcohol i was gonna say coffee but keeping in mind that at the start of the course i realized and a few of us realized that Drinking coffee wasn't the the optimal no. um, drink for for watchmaking. So we most of us actually switched from coffee to green tea because what green tea did was give us this steady this steady sort of um, ability all day. Whereas if we drank coffee, there was so many peaks and troughs. So we sort of switched to green tea, and we just sort of were able to work from morning till night without any sort of troughs and it was just like a steady like we had to optimize the way we we even uh, what what we what we took into our bodies i suppose we were working that hard and that many hours um anyway this day we we decided we we're going to drink a few coffees and because because when you're dealing with this hairspring you're trying to you're trying to connect it to the the vibrating tool and i'm not sure if you understand the if you know that vibrating tool alex it's like a little um this it's is like well, a, well above my uh, limited pay grade. <laughs> you may have seen a tool where it's got like a balance inside the tool, and you can you can hook the hairspring up to the little jaw, and then you 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 pivot the the tool, and it, you, you 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 compare the balance, your balance to the balance in the tool, and you try. Oh, and okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. a vibrating tool. So you, what you're trying to do is cut the hairspring and bend the hairspring and hook it up to this vibrating tool. Very, and it takes a steady hand. So this day we decided to drink a few cups of coffee, and and the idea was that we wanted to make this to make a hairspring really difficult. We wanted we wanted to train ourselves under um, different difficult circumstances. So we drank a few coffees, went up to the workshop and started making this hairspring. And Henrik's Henrik's seat was in sort of in front of me at the next set of benches. And at one stage I just heard all these tools dropping they were just dropping all the time he couldn't even hold his tools 
And at one stage, he turned around. He had this red, red face. And he's sweating. And he's just like, "This is fucking hard." <laughs> <laughs> but we we got to a stage where if if in the hairspring exam, if because it goes for like four four or five hours or something, the hairspring exam, the total exam, you can make a hairspring from start to finish. We got to a point where we trained ourselves to be able to make a hairspring in half an hour. So if if we got if there was half an hour left in the exam and we screwed something up, we we damaged the hairspring, we could just say, put it aside and start on a new one and just make that hairspring within a half hour. And it mightn't be the best, but it'll it'll pass the course. It'll pass the exam. And and it was it was constantly like every day just training ourselves to be better and better and and uh, to have steadier hands and to be able to see look at the watch movement from a completely different angle and to see everything in that watch movement to see everything to see every possible bend in a wheel every possible hairspring being out of centered or out of flat it was any bit of dust the correct oiling it was just yeah it was as i said i i didn't focus on much else but watchmaking for six months so <laughs> and i came That's out great. of course I came out of the course and I lost a lot of weight. If you look at a picture from me at the start of the course and then the end of the course, I didn't realize it until I got back to my girlfriend's um, house in Ireland that, yeah, I'd lost a lot of weight. And, and my mother-in-law, well, she, she wasn't my mother-in-law yet, but my mother-in-law basically saw me and thought, I've got to put some weight on this kid and um, started feeding me lots of potatoes for the next few months. <laughs> <laughs> It's great though, like what you're talking about. If you if you put all your effort into something, mm. even over a period of like six months, it can really yep. it can pay massive dividends. If you're just if that's all you're doing, yes. it's it, it's something I kind of try and tell people a lot. So it's great to hear somebody else actually doing that and and kind of yeah. reaping the the rewards. Um, but I'm as well about the coffee. If I have a coffee in the morning, pretty much I have to decide if I wake up and I'm super sleepy or I didn't sleep well, I have to decide, okay, am I going to have a coffee and then for the first hour, an hour and a half, just be incapable of doing any work yeah, or yeah. Do I just go in super sleepy and still not do any work for the first hour and a half until I, until I come around. But yeah. coffee makes, even I find um, it difficult to, to focus on stuff. You're talking about catching light, which is so important. Because if you catch things in the right light, it can totally change how everything looks and what you see and what you don't see, especially when you're dealing with such small things. But I find it so hard to focus if I have a coffee in the morning. Um, I miss, I just miss too many things. It's like my eyes are like are flying around too much and <laughs> unable to unable to yeah. really pick pick up as much stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 so true that yeah, oh. coffee coffee's a killer. Really. I. I have to say now, though, I've uh, after so many years, uh, and I, I, I don't shy away from coffee. I have I have three or four cups a day, and yeah, I don't drink green tea anymore at all. So I think I've just trained myself to be able to do watchmaking with coffee. So do you so put I'm, Jamesons in it? Maybe that helps you kind of even it, even the, it out. In the, <laughs> yeah, in in the evening I do. In the evening I do. <laughs> A little bit of Jamison, a little bit of uh, a podcast on or some music, and yeah, it's great. It's it's perfect. <laughs> so, Whiskey's a bit like coffee; it gets your heart rate up, and you, yeah, you you think a lot clearer. And so, after you did all that training um, for six months, and you lived over there, um, you came back to Australia. What did you do when you got back here? 
Well, yeah. So during the WOSIP course, um, it's crazy because you, you it's hard not to get a big head when you're at WOSIP. So you, you, you're going through all of this, this training and you're being evaluated and um, you go, you're going through these exams. But during the course, um, you're being contacted by watch companies already just because you're in the in the mm-hmm. WOSEP course. And so it was really hard to stay focused on the on actually completing the course because I had people from various companies visit me at the school and even and call me from, from different parts of the world to, to interview me. Um, so that at that's I didn't realise this beforehand, but that at that stage I realised how valuable it was to have a an education like that because I I remember even getting a call from from a uh a retailer in the Bahamas that wanted me to, to go oh. and work for them. And as soon as I mentioned that to my girlfriend at the time, um, that's it. Her bags were basically packed. She was, <laughs> she was, she was ready. To, she was ready to go. And I was, I sort of said to her, no, I'm not, I'm not looking for the, for the quick, for the quick uh, bit of fun on the beach or anything like that. I want, I want to go to a, I want to go to a company where I can, can further my training and, and there was a few companies that I was focused on, and I and, and I knew I was interested in Patek, uh, Breitling was another one, and and Rolex definitely because um, they had a reputation for for spending money on watchmakers training and and furthering their abilities. And during the course, um, I was told that Patek had had requested from Wostep. Um, a couple of watchmakers they wanted to interview and so towards the end of the course I was lucky to be one of those two watchmakers that was selected from so it's my understanding at least that the the, the director of WOSTEP was sort of spoke uh, called by Patek and said look I, I want two watchmakers that you you think are, are interested and would be willing and good enough to, to be working here so I was one of the watchmakers as well as a guy from the Netherlands that was sent to Patek in Geneva to spend a couple of days there. And so I, I went there and it was, a, it was a great experience. And, and that was a, that was a company that I would have definitely considered working for because they had a, they had a program where as a watchmaker, you could definitely chart your progress. And, and in the first five years, you would work on so many color, certain calibers and then, by year 20 or 25, you'd be in, in complications. And, and it was a it was an interesting program they had going on there. Um, but my bench test was terrible at Patek. It was, I've got to say, that I, it, was a, it was a good learning experience going to Patek because I didn't take any of my own tools. And I had such a big head. I walked in there like I was doing so well at Wastep. And I was like, I'm, I'm, everyone wants me. I'm just going to kill this. I'm, got, I'm getting calls from the Bahamas. I'm getting calls from London. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go along and they're going to want me. And, and it was the worst bench test ever. I, I went in there. I, I scratched a dial for the Calatrava, uh, <laughs> trying to fit the sub-seconds hand on it. <laughs> I, I was, After I left there, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm, from now on, I'm... I've got to, I've got to be more humble. I've got to take my own tools. I've got to be prepared. Whatever, whatever I think about myself, I, I can't think like that again. Um, so yeah, any bench tests I had after that were were, were very good. That <laughs> so, is great because yeah. yeah. I, I know lots of people get very kind of yeah up themselves when it comes to oh. to watchmaking, and not even people who are actually making watches. People that are servicing watches. And yeah. it's, it's, I don't know. I think a lot of it can sometimes comes down to 
kind of nerdy people or something and then they get a bit of success and suddenly within their work environment they they think they're they think they're great i think there's a lot more room for for humble people and all all, all parts of the, the watch industry and it's there good is. that you had that lesson early on oh that, i did i did it should keep you humble because there's so many things you can you can fuck up all the time yeah um and you need to if you own it it helps you move forward and be a better watchmaker if you just if you just always believe you're great you're never going to really learn anything no no and, no. and you've, you've you've got to you've got to expect mistakes to come along and and a certain amount of failure and that was a big lesson i mean i'm as I, as I said before, I was getting calls from all over the world before even completing the course, people wanting to hire me. And, and, and to be told that I was one of the guys selected to go to Patek for, a, for, a, for an interview, a bench test, and um, the, you, you've got to check yourself and say, hey, things can happen. And, and, and things did happen. And I realized, and I said, I said to the, the, the uh, head of after sales of Patek at the time, Look, I, I don't know what to say. I didn't have my tools. It, it didn't work out right. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable. But after that, I was I was prepared. I mean, every, everything I did at worst step for the next couple of months and and every interview or bench test I had, I was I stayed humble and I I was prepared for anything to happen basically. So after the after the course, I went back to Ireland. Um, it was, it was such a, such a relief to finish the course. Of course, I've got to say, I, I remember I remember being told um, that I completed the course and I'd finished it, and it was the the best thing in the world. I thought that that's it, I'm I'm set. And and there was a couple of people in the course that failed it, and I felt so sorry for them because we they had to come along to the graduation that night and um, at the castle in Neuchatel, and and you've got you've got seven or eight students celebrating the fact that they're past the course and these two guys that had failed and it's sort of it's after after putting in all that work it's a bit hard to to stomach but um it's rough it, it it can be yeah it can be but that's that's part of that course it was a very intense course and i've got to say it's a lot easier now when i did it they at least told you before you turned up to the castle for the graduation um Oh, so the but, people didn't even know. Jesus. No, so so years ago, <laughs> what would happen is that you would turn up for the graduation, this big ceremony at the castle in Neuchatel, and you would find out on the spot whether you passed uh, or failed, and there would be people watching you, and you couldn't go away and, and stomach it. So, so, I mean, it was bad enough for me having to wait weeks for results. We'd done our final exam, and we were going off and visiting different watch manufacturers for tours and stuff, and... And I'd, I would sort of be looking at my teacher at the time and, and sort of try, trying to gauge from him whether I'd pass or not. <laughs> it's like this, he's keeping this secret from me. And I was like, I was bugging him all the time trying to figure out if I'm passing or not. But um, yeah, so, but at least when I did it in 2004, they sort of told you at worst step, they, the, the, um, the, the head of worst step at the time, Martin Peters had sort of, he, he took you into a, a room together and sort of, talked about who who passed and who failed and and who did really well and 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 then that night you would go to the castle and to the graduation you at least be prepared so um that was that was a good experience but i got i got i got back to ireland to my girlfriend at the time and spent spent the christmas with my my uh, girlfriend's parents and had a few months in ireland and drank a lot of guinness and ate a lot of potatoes and 
<laughs> got got my weight back to a normal level. But from during that time, also I had um, I had a couple of companies, Jaeger, Jaeger La Coutre and IWC and Bryling. Um, they they sort of um, they flew us from Ireland to to London to for some bench bench tests and. Um, my girlfriend would come along with me, basically, and I'd go to these bench tests. And I, um, I was I was fortunate enough to have um, be offered jobs from from those companies. But I I did get a call one night from the general manager at the time of Rolex Melbourne, and um, and I'd sort of said to him, well, I'm not really wanting to come back to to Melbourne for a just for an interview or a bench test, and and he sort of assured me that. You know, you've passed those steps, so there's no issues. You 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 can have a job here if you if you want. And so, it was sort of the the my girlfriend and I talked at the time, and it was a it was a way up between. It was going to be London or Melbourne, and we just decided Melbourne at the time. And and I really appreciate she sacrificed a lot for that. She she basically said, I'm going to move away from my family, and I'm going to move to Melbourne. I'm going to have a new life in Australia for 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 this. And yeah, so. I always always appreciate the fact that she uh, she did that and um, and yeah so we decided to move, move back to Melbourne. I started my career with Rolex in 2005. And so how many years were you there for before you went on to, uh, to do Michael Woods watchmaker or Woods watchmaking? Yeah, so it was 2005 to 2017. So um, oh wow. Yeah, so I, I got to Rolex and I realised even though I had good training at at Wostep, um, there was a lot to learn still. So there was a lot of – I was a young guy that turned up at Rolex in 2005. I was uh, very inexperienced and, and young. And, and the guys at Rolex was a great team of experienced watchmakers. I learned a lot from them. And um, in the first in the first few months, I was, like, picking up picking up so much information from them and, and, and skills. And, and, yeah, in the first first year, I just I – just, took it all in i worked as much overtime as i could and and um yeah got to it got to a point where i um um in 2008 i was i was i was given the um job as workshop manager so after a few years but but in, in between then i, I was to, to describe how i got to that point i suppose i was i was the type of person that was always looking for the next challenge so i know I, a few months into working at rolex i was always I was I was already looking for the next challenge, so I'd I'd approached the the general manager at the time and sort of said, look, I I, I want some I want something else and more. I want I want as much responsibility as possible. So um, sounds a bit crazy, but I actually offered to to be the watchmaker that spoke to uh, customers that were unhappy with their service. I wanted to be the guy that sort of tried to manage that. And so I, I took on the I took on the responsibility because I wanted to weigh up I, w- I wanted to relieve the stress of the service manager at the time and I wanted to give him you know more time to actually manage the workshop. So I I actually took on a role of speaking with any any upset customers or customers that weren't 100% happy with with any service or or the product they just bought the the Rolex they just bought. So and I actually took that as a challenge and I and I and I was looking for the for the most upset, uh, disgruntled, disappointed customer possible, I wanted the worst. I want uh, every day. I was looking for the worst, just to be able to turn them around, and be Jeez. a be a Rolex, 
like lover. I wanted I wanted to just show people that I could do that, and and I did it quite successfully. I managed to yeah. I, I managed to do that. So it was um great experience. And that I, was I, a I great worked. thing. Yeah, like not many people would put their hand up for that sort of job, and I actually look I I was looking for I was looking for the challenge. I didn't care. Uh, at that point, I'd I've always had the mentality of just going for it and not not afraid of failing. And I think. I think I, I, I actually wanted I wanted mistakes to be to be brought on to me. I wanted I wanted I always looked for the failure early so I could learn from it. And um, I rem- I actually remember this lesson from from Jean Claude Beaver. So um, <laughs> good friend of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm part of the I'm part of the JCB Cheese Club because I've had his cheese before. Ah, oh, very um, good. Yeah, years ago I had his cheese and, and we're in a um a little restaurant in Melbourne and and I remember he gave a speech and it was it was like just basically make as many mistakes as possible. Just just look for those mistakes and look look to look to learn from them. And I remember after and his cheese was amazing by the way it was incredible <laughs> it was so, like, I, could, I couldn't get enough of it i must have looked like a pig sitting there in front of that that cheese and it's an interesting story because he actually got the cheese into australia by packaging it as promotional material for hublot at the time so oh, wow yeah but um I, I walked away from that just fired up and just just yeah and and i remember thinking yeah i've got to i've got to just take it take it on and whatever happens. happens. I think I know the answer to this question, but when yeah. you, you say that you were looking for the failures and he told you, you know, fail, 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 um, mm. I'm sure you don't. But when you think back to that um, test, the bench test at Patek, do you regret yeah. it or do you are you grateful that you went through that because it's, it's got you where you – and got you all the experiences that you've had post that failure? I'm completely grateful for it. Mm. I, I I I still to this day look forward to mistakes and failure and and there is an initial pain that comes on with any failure or mistake. <laughs> but you, you grow from it every time and you become a better, stronger person every time. And yeah, I mean and because of that I I can I can basically touch any watch. I don't care what watch it is. And I and I was like this as an apprentice. As an apprentice. I would I could work on a watch worth 50, 100 grand as an apprentice even and and make a mistake and learn from it. No, I wasn't afraid to do that. No, I, I've screwed up a lot of watches in my younger days to get to this point. So, um, yeah. and now I just don't make mistakes really, but I, I look for them all the time. I mean, I was, I was servicing watches at Rolex with um, where they had dials worth you know, I have to say the dials alone are worth close to a million dollars. I mean, the the wow. I, I got to that I got to that point where I really didn't care what I was touching because whatever happened happened, and I, I you have to approach. I think sometimes life like that, but but definitely if you if you want to make something of yourself in a, in a career, you've got to just attack it. And so I, I've worked on I've worked on a lot of watches with rare dials and. And um, it doesn't phase me anymore. In, in the end, it's just a watch. That's that's the way I look at it. It's a luxury item, and and it's yeah. it's, it's not. Lo- I'm not a doctor. I'm not a surgeon. It's not life or death. You know. <laughs> they hate it. Doctors always hate it. Anytime I speak to a doctor and I compare 
being a watchmaker to being a doctor, they don't take it well at all. <laughs> I've made that mistake a couple of times. Oh, but one the guy, my kind of mentor at work, um, yeah. who works in all the kind of breggy blanc pan stuff, like this, the the kind of high end stuff within our our world, um, yeah. he said it's problem solving. That's what watchmaking is. And yeah. as long as you're open to fixing things and correcting your own mistakes there's nothing you can't do because then you constantly learn things along the way and once I had that idea of there's nothing you can't you can't fix I mean there's obviously there's there is probably some things but it's best not to think about a bit about to think about that but um, you can always do a million tiny hits of a hammer and and fix things or there's you can move bits of metal over slightly and there's a million things you can do and once as long as you're open to that and as long as you're always willing to learn um yeah it really frees you up in terms of yeah being a watchmaker knowing that there's not you don't have to worry about stuff if you're working on stuff if it's a hundred dollar watch or a hundred thousand dollar watch if you know you can fix it then you're just doing the job you're not wasting all your time worrying about what can possibly go wrong um and a lot of the time i think if you worry about something going wrong i still get it like if i work on a a gold case if i'm working like a brand new gold case and i'm like god if i go if i do something wrong here (laughs) i'm gonna screw up this gold case and then you think oh shit shouldn't have thought that way definitely going to screw it up now but i think as long as you know <laughs> that you can always fix things yeah it yeah. makes it makes you end up being a better watchmaker i think i, I completely agree and and uh, as you as you say when you're working on say a gold case and you're thinking about the customer and what they're going to what they're going to think of that case afterwards that doesn't help when when you're doing the job you know um i think i think i i approach every watch now as as precious regardless yeah. of its value and and I, I could take on a watch I, I worked on a watch recently with a brand that has no history at all and there's no it's an, basically a no no name brand sort of watch there's no if you google that brand it's not even on google um probably maximum five hundred dollars in value a thousand dollars maybe but um i treated that watch like if, if i screw this dial up or, or anything, in, at least the dial, then how am I going to replace it? And it's the same with a, a, a Rolex Daytona with a Kanja dial. Or a, or a, I've worked on a Daytona before where there's a, a signature on the dial of a, a king. And it's like, you can't replace that, but you can't replace so many dials worth a lot less. So yeah. I work on every watch like it's, a, it's, it's precious. And... So when I come up to that dial that's worth thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if I alter the way I work on this watch, it's going to change the way it will potentially change the result. So I don't want to I don't want to change the, the way I work on any watches. Yeah. I just work on them all the same, and 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 I've had enough experience now just to be able to to be able to put that aside. That and I've, and I've failed enough that I just don't care anymore. So. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, and and it was more as an apprentice. I I screwed up so much, and luckily I was working for the family business at the time, and and most of, a lot of the watches I was working on were owned sometimes by the family business, and I was just restoring them, and you screw them up, and yeah, I learned so much in the first five years as a watchmaker, and and yeah, that was that was invaluable. So 
Nah. So after, yeah, oh, you sorry, got. Can it. I just ask something real quick? So when you're talking about yeah. these these fancy dials, yeah, I mean there's so much speculation, um, and I know with Swiss watch companies, the the history and the documentation and the the records that the watch brands keep can sometimes be sketchy at best. Like yeah. when it watches come in, basically is it. If it gets to you, then it's an authentic dial and an authentic stamp. Like how much? Obviously, I only know from the company I work for. But how much do do the the how far do the records go back? How easy is it for you to authenticate stuff and authenticate dials when when things come in? Because people always say, oh, if you send watches into Rolex, that's a good way to to work out if it's authentic or not. Whereas I'm not sure that would be the case for for all brands. I'm sure lots of brands get. Watch, watches in our weird dials and think shit is this actually a, one of ours or is it not because you just don't yeah. know because the record yeah. keeping has only been a relatively recent thing for a lot of brands to, to keep kind of good records anyway yeah it's a real it's a real tricky area and and rolex rolex do keep a lot of information um at the headquarters in geneva but they don't they don't share it easily um I mean, when when I was authenticating Rolexes uh, at Rolex, I would send a lot of images across, high high uh, res images across to a to a couple of contacts I had there, and they would verify stuff for me or help verify stuff for me. Um, but they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily share information easily because it's very very precious this information to them. So yeah, Rolex Rolex is definitely the place if like. The, they're tending to go away from from working on stuff with rare dials at the moment, um, or for the last few years, and which they should because it's it's too much of a liability. I mean, we we there was a lot of risk involved if I worked on a um, a military submariner or a Paul Newman Daytona or a, a, a dial with a rare rare marking on it when I was there, um, and. Being being service manager at the time, I suppose a lot of the risk was was on me. Um, but these days, I think they're going they're going in the direction of, of not working on watches that have these sort of dials on them um, because it's too much of a liability. They can't they can't be replaced most of the time. So, um, mm. and I, I completely support that. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be responsible for for damaging a dial like that. Um, but 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 myself in my own business, I can take responsibility for that um, as a as a an individual. But um, I understand why Rolex don't want to touch that stuff anymore. That was always something that kind of not as much with Rolex actually, but when other brands kind of shy away from dealing with their own kind of heritage pieces. I'm not, I'm not talking about reissues. I'm talking about their their own watches. I normally have an issue with the brand shying away from that when they make their when they make so much money from reissues of that particular watch. But because yeah. Rolex don't really do reissues, I think they're probably more justified than most to say we don't want to work on that stuff. It's too it's too questionable or it's it's too much it's too much of a risk for us. Um, so I don't actually it's one of the things I actually like about Rolex that that they do that versus other brands who are happy to pump out reissues of everything but then when you send them in the watch they'll say sorry it's over 50 years old we can't we can't do that so yeah, yeah i like that about rolex completely i i i support rolex still to this day i'm not obviously not employed by them but and, and 
and there is a certain amount of bias, I suppose, because I was part of management there. But I, I completely support the way they do things and the reasons why they do things. And and I mean, they still work on the watches from the early '60s. I mean, which is now you're pushing 70 years. Yeah. Um, so it's um, or 60 years, but um, but yeah, yeah. I, I I think they they. They do things the right way, and I've always supported the reasons behind why they do certain things. Um, yeah. So you finished in 2017, and then you went on. So the Woods Watchmaking, that's your own business now that you're doing? It is. It is. I've got a private workshop at, uh, at, basically at my home, and um, that's that's what I do now. So when I left in 2017, I'd, I'd already sort of, um, I'd spoken to Rolex well in advance of that. Um, I, want, I wanted because of what they, they were always good to me, and I wanted to to let them prepare for for me leaving. And and yeah. um, and there was no hard feelings at all. And I'm still friends with everyone at Rolex now. And um, it was yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity I had there. It was it was fantastic. Every year there, I mean, I was I was sent to Geneva three times for. For training on on different different references, and I was I was trained on the the Yachtmaster Two and the Skydweller, and I was I was the first course I was part of the first course that went for the Skydweller training in 2012, which was an interesting course and um, with the annual calendar, and then and then I mm. I was also given a special course on identification of Rolex, and um, which is which was a week with the restoration department where. Mm where I was, I was able to stay there and look at all the rare pieces and, and, and to be trained in authenticating really rare pieces, anything from the Newman to the, to the 1655 Steve McQueen Explorer 2 and mm. all the red submariners. So I, I got so much training and experience from Rolex, I just I couldn't, yeah, I, I, I have no, no hard feelings about that at all. And I, I, we left on good terms and then, the the main reason for me leaving was a change in 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 uh, I suppose uh, for for my family. I have a couple of young yeah. kids, a, a daughter that's seven and a boy that's about to turn five, and I I wanted them to be um, back here with my family, closer to my family, and live in the country a little more, bit more space. And at the moment, it's it's worked out well with the the coronavirus. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, we were, if we were still in Melbourne in that in that little house that we had then, um, we'd be going a little bit nuts at this point, <laughs> trying to trying to keep the kids entertained. But at the moment, they have um, an acre of land, and um, they it's like a big holiday for them at the moment. They're home from school, obviously the Easter holidays, but they'll be home for school for quite a while now. Um, so I'll be doing homeschooling with them as well. So. Was that a challenge? Was that a challenge when you went from working from Rolex to doing your own thing? Because a lot of the there's lots of people. I think I was saying to Anthony before we started recording, lots of um, the watchmakers at Rolex now used to work for us, and (laughs) the thing was that they would always people want to go to Rolex because you don't have to work on quartz anymore. It's mechanical if you're a watchmaker. You're dealing with only was it two or three basic really basically two or three calibers and yeah. but then on the other side 
we were going out for a drinks with some watchmakers one night and there was a guy from Rolex and he was leaving to go and become a, a plumber or an electrician or something. And he was like, I'm sick of watchmaking. <laughs> and I was trying to, there was a couple of young watchmakers out with us that night, a young technicians. Sure. And I was, I was trying to get them into the passion and stuff. And then there was this guy that's like, listen, kids, you should go and become a plumber. Like I'm going to, because watchmaking <laughs> is so boring because he was just working on the two or three different calibers over and over again. And I just really? totally got, got sick of it. So was there any challenge going from the the limited um, movements of Rolex to then going back to doing everything, if you like, opening yourself up to every kind of watch that people sent in, or was it was it just it's an good, easy transition? There's some good questions there, and I can I can speak to a, a few of them. I think there's a couple of questions in there, but I think uh, first of all. When you're at Rolex, you get such an experience of working on a number of different calibers, and I think the idea that you work on just a couple of calibers is is um, is not true. You get to work on anything from the 60s, so the 15, 1520s, the 1530s, 1575s. So anything with the rare, you know, the red submariners, 1655s, um, any of that old stuff, uh, you get to work on. But you also get to work on any of the modern calibers which I'm not as experienced in, the 32 calibers, but you get to work on the 31 calibers, the, the chronographs, the 41 caliber. Um, so you get to work on a lot of different stuff there. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think, um, I think it's a bit bit, un, bit unfair to say that you only work on a few few calibers there, but, but um, in, in answer to the question, was it difficult to move from there to the own business? It definitely was a, a, an adjustment because you used to, working on a watch and just being able to order a part and get, get a part <laughs> yeah. immediately. And now it's, and now it takes, yeah, in the, I've got to say in the first few minutes, first few months of my business, I was really adjusting to the idea that I had to stop working on a watch because I realized I needed a certain part. I needed to wait, wait certain weeks or days to get that part. Um, but after about six months, I think I got used to that. And, but it was definitely an adjustment. Yeah, no, You've got to sort of, you could be working on several watches at a time um, because you're waiting on certain components. But I think I've refined the way I work now. So um, as soon as I start on a watch, I want to know fairly quickly what I need. Um, and I order that or try and, try and obtain that part um, fairly early. So, so would yeah. you say you enjoy it more now doing your own thing versus... Um, what you were doing before? Or do you find more joy in in your day to day tasks, or do you ever I miss say, the kind of? Uh, yeah, I, I miss the ease of working in a company that that is you've got parts readily available. I mean, for my last eight months working there, I basically supported the the new service manager and worked as a watchmaker, which was a delight. It was I've got to say I I could. I, after stepping down as being a watchmaker for, for eight or nine years, oh, sorry, a service manager for eight or nine years and managing a number of different areas of that service centre, um, to just focusing on the movements in front of you um, was was a delight. But I appreciate, I also appreciate the challenge now of working on different brands, modern, vintage, so many different types of watches. I'm learning a lot still. With, with what I'm working on now. So I could work on a, a, a really old pocket watch now or I could work on something fairly fairly modern. Um, 
And so every day there's something different. Every day. So it's, um, yeah. I, I've got to say, I, I probably enjoy it more now because of the challenge, but I've always been that sort of person that wants wants the challenge anyway. So not not everyone would be sort of up for that type of work, I think. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, I can definitely see the watchmakers that would want to just be be doing the easy work every day. I don't don't blame them for it either. And we'll we'll shift gears now. No pun intended. See what I did there. Uh, and let's let's chat a little bit about this project that you've got going on. So I'm sure this has been a bit of a um, a brainchild of yours for quite a while. But tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and what you're trying to achieve by by doing it. Yeah. So. Um, Basically, around around the restoration work and the service work I'm doing, I'm trying to create a chronograph um, of my own. And and when I say my own, I'm trying to create one for myself initially. So um, I'm basically I'm taking a I'm taking inspiration from the chronographs from Patek Philippe and Vacheron Constantin and Audemars Piguet from the late 30s to the early 50s. Um, some of those watches are just you look at them and they're just they're just beautiful. The movements, the dials, the cases, they're just they're amazing. And to own one of those, say a Patek from that era is, is it costs a lot of money to, to own something like that. So I just I decided to to try and create one for myself, something similar to that and inspired by that. So I've got a um I'm working on a vintage uh Belgiu twenty two caliber and I'm trying to Trying to create a movement that will last for hopefully decades and even centuries by by adding more jewels to it and finishing all the parts by hand. Um, so, Anthony, uh, sorry, Alex, you'll you'll know this by by movements that you work on with a where the center wheel or the barrel isn't jeweled and and over time it wears quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm trying what I'm what I've done so far with this movement is I've I've added jewels in the center wheel and the and the barrel for this on a vintage movement, and what I want to create is a, a vintage chronograph that, that in decades time you can you can pull it apart and put it back together and basically clean it and relubricate it, and you don't have to do you don't have to make a bush or a bearing for that for that barrel or the center wheel. So it's kind of the idea when people take like an old E-type Jag or something and they put modern brakes on it and make it a more usable daily watch that does a daily car that doesn't have to be kind of babied quite as as much. Is that the kind of idea that you're you're going for? Would you say? Sort of, sort of. Um, I, I, I want in in fifty or hundred years time, I want this watch to be not completely worn out. I don't want it to be scrapped and like the movement. Um, so worn that it can't be repaired, and and that's what you see with a lot of watches. And, and there's a lot of lot of watches you get um, that when you get them, they're so worn that you have to drill out certain areas of the main plate and replace with a bush or a bearing. And if and if a watchmaker makes a mistake in that area, that movement can be destroyed. Um, and it can get it could get it could it could go get worse from that. So I want to make a movement that. And Patek did this, and Vacheron did this. They they added a jewel to the center wheel, mostly, but they they never in the vintage ones they never added a jewel to the the, the barrel area back where the power source is coming from. And 
nowadays they do that, but I wanted to make a vintage sort of style movement and, and hand finish all the levers, hand finish all the bridges. Um, similarly, but not completely the same. I wanted to make the bridges with a like a frosted finish and yeah, it's, it's, that's sort of what I'm doing. And I, I, I have no idea what case I want to construct yet or the, the dial style necessarily, but it's definitely inspired by those, those watches. And, and initially the project was, was started by me just to, just, just because I wanted to, to own a watch like that. I want to, I want to have a watch like that, whether it be steel or white gold or yellow gold with a, with a vintage style dial. Um, and since speaking about this, there's been a couple of people, a couple of customers of mine that have said that if, if I complete this watch, they want to, they want to buy it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that so sounds pretty cool. It, it sounds it very does, cool, actually. But, but initially, the first one is just for me, and then if 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 someone likes it and they want to, they want me to build them one, I can I can do it. And I just yeah, love the idea of taking a movement like a Value Twenty Two, which is such it's got such good bones and such a workhorse of a movement but just upgrading it and just making it so that this this movement could potentially work for centuries and just be disassembled and assembled and re-lubricated and that barrel area and that center wheel area is protected by a jewel instead of just metal on metal um so yeah it's, so what's, it's what's the eta for this what's when yeah. when when's this oh, going to be um just to put pressure on yourself <laughs> so that people can go on to your instagram and be like, where where the hell is this watch, Michael? What's happening with this watch? Yeah, yeah. Well, at the moment, I've got the jewels fitted successfully to the the barrel and the, the center wheel, and I've, I've I've finished the main plate with a perlage finish. At the moment, I'm finishing off the the upper bridge, and then I'm going to start hand finishing the levers. And I can't give you an ETA on the on the the, the work because because of um it's it's a, it's a I'm always weighing up between working on restoration service work but who knows with this coronavirus maybe i'll get less less service work and for the next few months i might be focusing on on this watch so you never know by the end of the year it could be could be almost completed just remember your priorities podcast first listen to the podcast then secondly then you can do your project (laughs) right No, no, no. I, I, I listen to the podcast while I work on it. That's oh, that's right. Excellent. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so what are you thinking for the the dial? Like, I know you don't know, you don't know the case and the construction, all that kind of stuff, yeah. but yeah. painting a small picture of sort of what's going on in your head around what do you think the dial is going to be like, the layout, maybe color? Uh, look, I, I, I've always loved the Arabic numerals, applied Arabic numerals. And that's something that I would love to do on a chronograph dial, applied Arabic numerals. Um, I'm not 100% sure of the color. And usually when I approach a, uh, any sort of challenge or a project, I have a, an end goal in mind, a definitive end goal in mind. But this, this time I wanted to just do it component by component. So each day, I could spend an entire day on one lever of the chronograph and just focus on that lever and not think about the next one. Um, one day could be just bebbling, bebbling uh, the gear train spokes or the wheels. Um, so at the moment, I don't, I don't have an absolute picture in mind, but I like the idea of doing a chronograph, a two-register chronograph um, with Arabic numerals. And it could be a steel case. It could be a yellow gold case, a white gold case. I don't know yet, but that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Either way, sounds good to me. Very yeah, um, I mean, I, I love the idea of just owning it. Whether someone else wants to buy one at some stage, I don't really care at this point, but I just love the idea of making one for myself. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. So we'll just have a very brief chat around Rolex um, and we'll then move into our favourite reviews and then our Instagram picks of the week. But um, yesterday, obviously, well, there'll be a podcast that's coming out um, that'll be out by the time people hear this that's around um, the selling of someone's BLNR versus keeping one. Um, do you own a Rolex? Uh, being that you worked there for many years. And what do you think is going to happen? I know you don't like the hype, and we don't want to talk about that too much because it's covered immensely on the internet and it's boring now. Um, but how do you see the future going for someone like Rolex with the secondary market and things like that? I, I do own some Rolex. I own some um, vintage and some modern, but... Um, so I, I I like the Deep Sea. I like the Explorer Two. Um, I have a one hundred one six. Um, but yeah, as far as as far as the new the current market, I I've, I I I don't necessarily like the way that all the hype over the Rolex is going. Like I, I think I think I I I find it. Yeah, I don't like seeing all of these these Rolexes on Instagram all the time. I, I like the idea of someone liking one of those Rolexes and and enjoying it for that um, if they really want want that watch. But I don't like the idea of people that are inexperienced with with those with those watches just buying them because they're popular. Um, yeah, I don't know how I don't know how else to answer it actually. No, it, I mean, look, it's a silly question in a, in a lot of ways because it, it's going to be what it'll be. And I suppose the the thing that I take from hearing you talk about it is that it's just frustrating. Like it's annoying that um, there are that, that the market has gone this way, and the fact that people and you'll hear you when you listen to JP talk about the person that bought his. Um, they buy it because it's a Rolex, not because they enjoy that watch, whether it's mine was a bit of a different story. But I, I suppose that I hope that it calms down a little bit and people can go back to purchasing these watches because they mean something or they they love the aesthetics or the, the history or w whatever it is. But it's uh, oh, it's a, an interesting yeah. time. What about, I, just, I from our, what about yeah. just from like a watchmaking perspective? Because in terms of the actual value in, in the prices, when we're talking about the paying 150% of retail or whatever for or on these watches are double. Um, I guess when I look at like the, the new wave dial uh, ceramic Seamaster with the coaxial yeah. movement and stuff like that, when I look at the prices of those, it's a lot easier to see where the money is. So yep. when I look at how it's made and the quality and stuff, I'm like, okay, I can, it seems realistic to me that somebody could charge and that's the issue i have with rolex modern rolex and especially ones that are hyped over retail i just can't see the value there when i look at the watch um, yeah and think about what else you could get for the same money whether it be a, a vintage handwind chronograph or something or or just something a lot more exciting to me so when you look at rolex modern rolex can you see yep. The, can you tie the watchmaking into the price, or is is it like me? Can you not tie those those two things together? I, I can actually tie the tie the price up to the, the watch and say that there there's a reason why they're they're so popular and their their value is going through the roof. I don't necessarily like all the hype behind it and the the excessive 
uh, values in, in auction prices and, and, and second-hand market. Um, I, I, think, I think that's based upon the fact that there's, the vintage Rolex market is so strong and people are looking into the future and saying, well, if, if, if I keep a Submariner or a GMT or a Daytona for 30, 40 years, it, it, I, I could have something worth quite a fair bit, a fair bit of value. And, and it's potentially going to be like that, but I, I just think I completely agree with you, Anthony, in the fact that when I buy a watch, I, I want to buy a watch because I like it for, for what it is and, and, and I try yeah. and block out all the other stuff and I try and just and, – and I can't help be, be influenced by, the, by Instagram and by everything, by the social media, but I, I actually go towards watches that aren't as popular. I, yeah. I, I bought an Explorer 2 last year, and that's like the one of the most entry-level professional watches. Besides the Explorer 1, actually, the sort of the Explorer 2 and Explorer 1 are really, really good value at the moment. And since buying that, it's it's already gone up a few grand in value. And yeah. you can see that's the next next thing to go up. But but I think I think they are worth what they're worth because of a number of reasons. They're a great product. They're reliable. The after sales for Rolex is it's hard to beat. Mm. That's a big thing. And and Rolex have always put a lot of value on the after sales and supporting supporting the customers. And you might hear a few stories here and there about bad experiences, but they, they try and limit them and, and they don't want any bad experiences at Rolex. And if there is, sometimes it's because of an individual. But yeah. But I, I They've always put a lot of effort into after sales, and and I know when I was there as service manager, they we when speaking to the general manager, we always talked about the fact that one customer that's happy could could speak to two or three people about their their experience, and that someone's unhappy could speak to twenty, thirty people about their experience, or yeah. even put it on the internet. And I was always in the mindset of keeping everyone happy as much as I could, and just and I think that's a big part of why Rolex is successful because there's a lot of brands out there, unfortunately, that you could buy something worth a lot of money and it has to be sent overseas to get fixed. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I've heard about it a lot. But, um, yeah, I think I think there is value, whether whether it's you buy – whether whether it's that much value, whether you – you know, we're talking about Daytonas and GMTs going up towards $30,000 or excess – excessive $30,000. I'm not sure about that. I think that's a little bit inflated. But I felt if I was offered a, a, a Daytona or a GMT or a Submariner for just above retail even, that's an easy one for me. It's, it's yeah. yeah, I think there's so much sure. value in Rolex. And, yeah, I think and retail, they, yeah. And they never, they never, they never, um, they never talk about hand finishing or they never try and oversell something. They, they 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 don't they don't lie about what their product is. It's it's mm. it's a reliable, really well made product. I mean, they put a lot of they invest a lot in R and D. I mean, I remember when I went for the Skydweller course in in 2012, um, with the first course for the Skydweller. We spoke to the the head designers of the course, and that that thing was that they were developing the Skydweller for ten years. I mean, they're not after a quick buck. They're in it for the, the long run. They 
they developed that Sky Dweller for 10 years before they released it. They wanted to make sure that that thing was bulletproof, and it is. It's, it's, that Sky Dweller mm. movement is one of the best movements I've ever seen or ever worked on as far as its robustness and its reliability and the accuracy. And they built, they built an annual calendar that could, you could change parts on and not worry about the, the, the exchangeability of parts like you can with some other companies. Yeah, wow. Well, let's just hope, as you, you were talking about the Explorer and the Explorer 2, now they've already started to go up. Let's hope that we don't get to a stage where it's $20,000 for an Oyster Perpetual with a white dial, because I think uh, I think uh, it will be a sad day for watch nerds if that happens, but we'll, uh, we'll have to just sit back and wait and see, I suppose. Actually, very, very, super, super, super quickly while you're here, before I forget, I actually had a message from somebody that listens to the podcast and I almost forgot, but I've got it written down here in great big crayon. So there's a guy called Michael Yee who listens to the, the podcast and he's from yeah. Canberra and he wants to know, can you put Mercedes hands on an OP36 116000 watch? Is that possible? The 369 dial. Yeah. Oh, so the Oyster Perpetual. Um, yeah, I'd have to look into that. I'm not sure. Rolex oh, will be able to tell you straight away, but the the Oyster Perpetual, that one one, what, what's the reference again? One one six triple zero. Triple zero. That's right. That is one of the best value watches you can buy oh, today. Hundred percent. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. If I was told that that I that I could only own one watch, that would be one of those watches I would consider yeah. because it is it's like it's like a watch that you go swimming with. Uh, it's 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 so durable. It looks nice. You can wear it with a suit. It's yeah. It's a bit like the Explorer One. It's yeah. It's just it's perfect. Yeah. I'm, Do you I'm like sure thirty six mils? Do you think thirty six oh. mils are ladies' size? No, 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 not at all. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, no. I I have <laughs> I have a number of watches that are thirty five, thirty six mil. Um, that Omega, the vintage Omega that I wore Easter Sunday. Um, yeah. The chocolate dial. I had to wear a chocolate. Oh dial. yes. Yeah, that's oh that's that second hand. Yeah, that's thirty-five oh. millimeter, and and yeah. it wears so well. And it's it's a manual wind. It's a six hundred one caliber manual wind, really slim. But they made that watch to be like a waterproof watch. Um, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't look like a waterproof watch. It's this really slim sort of nah. dress watch. Um, that's thirty-five mils. I wear an IWC that's thirty-five mils occasionally, and then I go to the deep sea, which is uh, <laughs> a, a mammoth watch, you know. So I, I wear all all types of watches for yeah. I can wear, wear dress watches or the the Bremont. The Bremont is such a, an amazing watch for an everyday watch. I just wear that. I wear that most actually. The Bremont. It's um because I don't I don't have to think about what I'm doing. If I want to, I've got a rubber strap for it. If I want to go swimming, um yeah, it, it does everything for me. So. I think anyone who wears over 30 mil is overcompensating for something. That's why, <laughs> 20, I, wear, that's why I wear 28 mil Carty. So, uh, <laughs> Jeez. Right, let's start. Speaking of Cartier, though, I've got to say that as a watchmaker, I've never really appreciated them as much as I do in the last 12 months or two, two years. I've, I've I've, I've realised that the, the designs are just beautiful. I love the the tungsten the the tungsten tray. Um, yeah. Oh, I was so I was trying to get the platinum version. Yeah. Through a through a boutique and With couldn't get it. Style. 
It's got a 26 on it. Um, If you haven't seen it, I'm sure you probably have, but check out um, Waco Revolution's uh, interview with John Goldberger. He's got two briefcases. Thanks, Trey. Oh, it's just insane. Let me tell you, oh. I've seen that. I've probably watched that like five or six times. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Like John Those John platinum, oh, the platinum yeah, ones like, on the brakes from the thirties yeah. are just insane. I can't, I can't wait to meet John Goldberger. I, I just, yeah. wanna, I want to pick his brain because I, I, I message him quite a bit about whatever. Like if I, if I work on vintage longines and I want some information on it, he's got it. Okay. Yeah, oh, he replies so... as well. I've messaged him he a couple does. of times about stuff. He's really, really good. And at first, I remember messaging him and he said, Oh, like you need to wait for the book to come out that I'm writing on it. And yeah. then I said, Oh, no, actually, it's like my my friend at work has got something or he's working on a vintage launching. Like I, I thought you might know. And then he was yeah. so forthcoming with information. And yeah. I thought, Surely he's got to be too busy, like just walking around with these multiple Cartier cases full of Cartier watches but like he came back he and he up his stuff. yeah just always handcuffed to both always. wrists yeah. um but he was he's such a nice guy actually really really good so yeah. I was actually surprised I mean I he I don't want to I don't want to over over use that that you know I don't, I don't want to overdo it with him but if I have a question that I can't answer and I can't get anyone else to answer then I'll message him and he will get back to me straight away so I hope People don't just go and start messaging him about. Yeah, stuff, don't message you know, him because that's all dick. They're not messaging. Yeah, yeah. Never replies. Exactly. But no, he's he's such a nice guy. I mean, it's unbelievable how much information he's given me already. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Really cool. All right, we'll move to favorite review of the week, uh, which I have here, and then uh, hopefully, Michael, you've got someone that we can talk about to go follow on Instagram as well. Um, but. Uh, I'll stick to the favorite review for now. So the the review for me this week was a really funny review and I encourage everyone to go read it. And it's on the Rolex Milgoss 116400 white dial. Um, and it says uh, the, the, the sort of title of the review is not a run of the mill Rolex. Get it? Uh, and it's done by uh, Watch the Watchman. Uh, and uh, so he... You read his review and it it is quite funny where he's got a lot of puns in there, but he talks about how the, uh, the watch doesn't take itself too seriously. It's not, it's not your everyday Rolex. You've got to be a little bit quirky to have it. Um, he sort of talked a little bit about, you know, he's not going to need the, he's not a scientist and he doesn't need the with hand withstand the heavy magnetic fields. And he says, I don't suppose many people need a helium escape valve either um, for the swimming pool. So, you know, it's just a really good review. There's a comment on it as well from someone else that that enjoyed the review. But um, he, uh, he he really sort of goes into detail about how the orange uh, lightning bolt hand uh, is, you know, it's not for everyone. I absolutely love them. I, I think they're a fantastic watch. Um, yeah, and definitely something that, yeah, Milgoss. Um, actually, one thing he did write in here, and I'm going to ask a question because yeah. I'm not too sure. The um, the um, the lock on the clasp. Does the Milgoss have the safety clasp? No, it doesn't. It just has a regular yeah. regular clasp. It's a beautiful um, polished uh, polished center links, uh, yeah. finished outer links, and just regular clasp with like a little spring loaded flip at the end. Um, yeah, like the date just, the just I class. Got, I actually got the uh, the one one six four hundred GV with the green crystal for my dad, uh, and um, nice. he got that years ago, and and 
and it's really fascinating to think about. Like they, they've actually got to watch out with like a green crystal. Like in 20 or 30 years' time, people could be looking at that and saying, Rolex actually, like this company actually put a watch out with like a green colored crystal. Yeah. I mean, what other companies do that? It's, and Rolex. It'd be like looking at stuff in the 70s now when we look at it and yeah. go, what were they thinking? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, but it's I cool, though. I think that's a great watch to buy. I mean, I just, yeah. Absolutely. You can spot that green crystal from across the room as well. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll segue into um, Instagram followers for this podcast. So mine is him. So it's Watch the Watchman. Um, He has a number of fantastic watches, but I also want to shout out to him for his contribution to the fifth risk website so if you go and have a look at his uh, highlights the story highlights that you put on your profile page you can see that i think he's done uh, five reviews uh, he's got jlc um reverso there's an ultraman there's a pelagos milgos nomos um so certainly someone worth following and, and obviously you're going to get some good reads he's a funny guy um certainly has a beautiful collection i think he gets his hands on some watches uh, as well, uh, he's got an eBay site that you, if you're interested in buying some of his watches, you can maybe go there as well. But yeah, just uh, an awesome dude. Can't thank you enough for your contribution uh, to the website and and allowing other people to read your experiences on different watches. So if you're in the in the market for a Pelagos, a Milgos, um, lots of gosses there, uh, a Reverso. <laughs> Ultraman, go and check him out. He's uh, he's fantastic. So he's a yeah, really really you. nice guy. Like I speak to him now and again. Um, yeah. always enjoy speaking to him. He's actually I remember he sent me some kind of not a spreadsheet but some kind of chart that he keeps about how much wrist time each of his watches get. And he's got wow. some kind of like app. So every time he wears a watch on one day or like multiple watches in the same day he puts it in so over the course of the year you can see how much rest time his watch has actually got so if you if you needed any evidence about like how much of a watch guy this is i don't think you need any further evidence after that but yeah he's a really nice guy so that's a good choice that's good that is awesome uh alex what about you i've got someone who again did a review of a watch it's not on the site yet but just a really really nice guy just like for all the people that do reviews on the sites on the site there's so many people i just have a really nice time talking to or like i'm just really blown away by the quality of their 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 writing or their photography or their collection so this is a guy who did a review on you know one of the zrc divers the ones that's got the 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 crown at six o'clock it's like a vintage french thing the watch itself is really cool, but the guy's really cool as well. He takes really cool photographs, both of watches and other stuff. And on Instagram, he is Chow Chi Yong. So C-H-O-W-C-H-E-E-Y-O-N-G. Um, and yeah, just a really nice guy. His, his photographs are, are really, really good. Um, and I had a, a nice time kind of talking to him when he started to do stuff on the website. So look out for his review that's coming up soon and go give him a follow. Awesome. I didn't follow him, so I am now. Cool. Uh, perfect. And Michael, you're yeah. you're someone to go follow. 
Yeah, I've got a few people, but I'm going to stick to one because I, I know how you guys hate, yeah, hate good. multiple, you know. Uh, First and yeah, last maybe, visit maybe, to the podcast, it would have been otherwise. <laughs> maybe in future podcast episodes, I can I can mention the others. But uh, I've got one, uh, Jedly One, J-E-D-L-Y-1. Yes. Um, he's Andrew Jed McCormick, and um, he's, he's a guy that I've, I've worked on several of his watches you know these Paul Newman Daytonals or mil- military submariners, and and um, but he's he's big into Patek as well, and he has a couple of Pateks that I just I wish I could have. That'd be like a one watch collection if I could could get the salmon dial chronograph for petrol calendar or the or the black enamel dial split second chronograph. He he has some amazing stuff on there. Um, he's a, he's a he's an English guy, but he's a he's a local local collector to Melbourne and. Um, He's he's big into Porsche as well, and yeah, his Instagram is fantastic. A lot of yeah, good watches and cars. Sick, sick. I think anyone would be happy to have one one of oh. his watches, right? Oh my Amazing god! I, tr- I, I tried that. I tried the uh, the black dial split second on one day, and and I was just like, this is all I'd need. This is it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you very much for that, um, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on. We can't uh, can't thank you enough for the you know your contribution for what you do, even just in your in your job and and giving us some of that um, perspective on Rolex. I think it's really refreshing to hear you, you're right. You do hear the stories, um, and I've certainly heard a few. Hasn't yeah. put me off, but it's nice to know that um, you know you've got that real confidence to say that you know they they are always trying to do the right things. And it's like any business, you know, there will be things that don't quite go to plan. Um, but that wasn't the intention, and I think of that's course. really important. That's really yeah. important. So. Of course, uh, and thank you guys for having me on. I, I hope we can we can talk again sometime. Yeah, oh, go give sure go can. give Michael a follow. Woods Watchmaking. Yeah. Go on, go on to his Instagram and say, "Hey, Michael, have you finished that watch yet? What's happened with your chronograph? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a couple of days since I listened to the podcast. Yeah, so exactly. And I was going to say, <laughs> Alex, have you have you been to Ireland before? I, I haven't. haven't been to no. What do you, you, you both know? of you haven't? I've, no. I've never been there. Oh, Although man. people always confuse me for being Irish, so yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. it's you, you guys should get over there sometime when all of this is over. Um, I've got to say, last year I was at a a, a pub in a little town called Ballysaget, and after five or six pints of Guinness in, they had this baby competition where grown men were dressed as babies and wearing <laughs> like nappies <laughs> and walking in the pub, and it was. It was unbelievable. I, I couldn't believe it. Like my, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law took us out one night and said, you, you're going to love this. And <laughs> Wait a minute, this uh, was a lot of Guinness. And, and all, of a sudden, all of a sudden, there was a DJ there and everything. And this little, little tiny country pub set, you know, set in the middle of all these farms. And these grown men, like half a dozen grown men coming in, entering for like a baby comp- competition, wearing like nappies and – like try pretend pretend to be babies and it was the funniest weirdest thing i've ever seen and if you guys get to an island sometime then we'll have to go to that that competition because it's, <laughs> it's a great night out. wait a minute do you want us to compete or just go along and uh, well I, I actually think i actually for some reason i picture alex competing oh, yeah. in the event oh, me too i can easily yeah, i can see like, that Especially after a Jamison or a few few pints of Guinness, like easily. But yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's definitely the last time you're coming on, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, thank you again, Michael. Thanks, Alex. Um, stay home, stay safe, and stay on time. Thanks, guys.